Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Welcome to In the Know, Anil Dash, legend of technology and social obligation. Ah, sure, okay, I'll take that. Probably more a legend of the responsibilities we have as business leaders and technologists than a pure technology legend. I mean, you didn't write TPPIP as far as I recall. No, I did not. That is true. <laughs> we came to know each other, though, when you were starting a company, and uh, our friendship had a more intermittent cadence now that you're running Glitch. Yeah, it's been so intense and so heads down that we have not had time to actually pause and have these bigger conversations, so I'm glad to get the time to do it. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure that we have some time to talk with each other and maybe even share some of the things you might have learned along the way with other people. Hopefully so. I would like to get our average listener up to speed on uh, you, and then maybe we can tackle some of the stuff you've been doing more recently. How does that sound? Sure. Love it. All right. Well, it's going to be your turn, but I'll set you up. Just a small town kid. <laughs> yes, that's true. So, yeah, I... I um, big city. That's Take right. Take karaoke I, from there. On exactly. Right. I'm going to try not to get derailed about Journey. I have a lot of feelings about that song. But I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. I moved to Manhattan the, the summer I was 21, not knowing anybody, not having a job. And at that time, you could say, I know computers. That was a thing. You'd be like, I work in computers. And so I was kind of like, I'll do whatever. Like, I'll plug your printer in. I will get you hooked up to the internet. Like, I don't, I don't care. And um, so sort of did that and had had a, a business, you know, doing a little bit of like custom software for people and things like that. But it wasn't really anything serious. It was, it was just trying to make ends meet. And started from there, and fortunately for me, found the early social web pretty quickly. I started blogging back in 2000, found a community, a cohort of people that were doing that and creating a lot of the early days of social media, and pretty soon kind of jumped into the deep end. I was always like the tech guy in the room in the other industry. So whether I was in music biz or publishing or whatever, media, anything, I was always the person talking about the technology aspect of what they were doing. And my friends had built one of the first social media tools, a publishing platform that was used to build, you know, Huffington Post and Gawker and all those early social media sites. And, uh, and that started me on the path. And then really, since then, that was movable. That was movable type. type. Yeah, yeah, which was, um, you know, for people to, today know, to... know WordPress, or they know, you know, even Tumblr or whatever, it was sort of a predecessor to all those. And yeah, yeah, it was, at the time, very popular. It was like, we were a hot startup for a minute, like that, that was my first taste of that world and both the, the good and bad parts and um and very instructive and so that opened a lot of doors and, and taught me about how the industry works but also kind of got me feeling like building stuff that you know in that case millions of people use is exciting it's really fun and especially if it's something that can give them some power to express themselves or to get an idea out there to advocate for something they care about or just to share their, their creativity. Like that was always like, well, here we go. The big here inspiration. Perfect. <laughs> well, that was it. I mean, I realized that was the driving force and, and for the people I was around, that was the consensus. But I also came to realize very quickly, there were people who were sort of their approach was, this is not even, I don't even mean this to sound as, as negative as it does, but like their approach was they would make a spreadsheet about where the most money was and, build a product for that market, you know? And I'm like, okay, that's one way to do it. It doesn't have a lot of soul for me. Like it's, that doesn't appeal to the way that I look at these things, but I just didn't Hold realize up a sec. that. Hold up a sec. Yeah. Is this just you as like 
the son of two rich Indian doctors where they had a monopoly. <laughs> so, in so no, so, uh, my parents are not like doctors. privilege to me, Anil. Totally, it uh, totally is. Um, uh, I will say, my parents are not doctors. We are actually. Well, then they were engineers. Thing. I mean, come on, you're engineers. Yeah, my dad, my dad, yeah, yeah, my dad, my dad's an engineer. But there, there's an interesting thing within the dynamics of this stuff that I didn't realize at the time of like we were being in rural Pennsylvania. There were not really any Indian people around. I didn't have a lot of fluency in the culture, and so I had a very different experience even than other Indian immigrants did because I just didn't have a lot of context. Like I, I talked to folks who grew up in New York, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we were a whole community, and we knew all these people, and this sort of social context that they existed in." And I just was not fluent in that stuff. So, you know, I, I absolutely was very privileged. I mean, I have cousins that still live in our village back in India. And, you know, when we would visit as a kid, there was no running water, no electricity, no vaccines. Almost none of the kids went to anything past grade school. And that's still conditions there. We're not from a big city. We're from a very poor, very rural part of India. So that was always very, very different experience and a stark juxtaposition from growing up in the US. And so I think that does inform a lot of my perspective and opinion, which is like, I'm very fortunate, but I knew how tenuous that was, how close we were and how fragile that was to just one generation before not having any of that stuff. We were not, even amongst immigrants I knew, they tended to be on very well off in the countries they'd come from. That's the way they were able to afford to come to America. And we were a little different in that regard. And so the calling to work in computers was you kind of following the rules, go learn a little engineering, <laughs> don't waste this heritage. You know, it's funny. No, I was... They were very strongly like, you got to be a doctor and you, you can be any kind of doctor you want, but you got to be a doctor. And because they had fought so hard for education, these things, and I had actually withdrawn my application to college, dropped out of college and decided to build a business working in tech. And that was scandalous. That was really heretical. And it was not at all Shock. the path of was development. Yeah. So it was very, Shock. yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, my sister has a master's degree and did all the right things. And my, you know, my family was always like, you know, you got to pursue your education above all. And I really definitely for a while was the black sheep by like not being the good Indian son for a while. And I just really, I had been so drawn to tech and really loved it. I didn't have any delusions about, it's funny now, because I think there are all these narratives, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or whoever, there sort of is a narrative of dropouts that become tech execs or whatever. That wasn't it at all for me. I was really just like, I don't have the the, the discipline. And uh, I'm really drawn to like creating something. And so I, I was able to do it. But um, yeah, it was a long, long time, well past my first startup. And the first time we'd had, you know, a company raise millions of dollars before my parents finally stopped asking me when I was going to become a doctor. <laughs> All right. So purpose has reared itself. You're thinking there's got to be a better way than making a spreadsheet with total addressable markets as one of the columns. Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and you know, I'm not averse to that. I think a big market is great and necessary to build a business. And like, I, I'm not, you know, it's not this posturing of like, how dare you be concerned with such rank matters as paying the bills? And I was like, no, you got to be able to pay the bills and, and you got to go after something that matters. I, I just think the, the why matters just as much. Like if you have no connection and no sort of intrinsic motivation at a human level to care about the work you're doing, the odds that it's going to be thoughtful seem to be about zero. Yeah. So that, that so I think matters to, a lot. Let's get to it. Let's, let's follow that thread. Let's follow that thread. Yeah. So you are with the movable type crew building mm -hmm. this tool that's widely used. You see the power and the reach, see what it's enabling. People are probably like anonymously blogging stories that would get them put in jail or persecuted. Yeah. And you're like, this oh, is yeah. Yeah. And, and it was just, happened. you know, and like there was, so there was on one, one side, the really 
that kind of like newsworthy big deal. They broke a story or they were a whistleblower kind of stuff. But the, the thing that actually resonated with me a lot was just like a human who was like, I didn't know anybody else felt this way. So they'd be writing about, oh, I really like this book or, you know, this artist or I, there's a political cause I care about that's like really obscure and nobody's paying attention to right now. And that was always it for me was like not the big grand things, but just like that really simple human level of like, wow, I didn't think anybody else ever saw that movie and liked it. And that was just like... I don't know. It was almost like addicting to me. I was like, oh, wow, that's like, if I can enable that, then I'm, I'm really happy. And also, you know, keep in mind, I'm talking about blogs or social media in that era, but everything that we do, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, like, and Twitter, like all that stuff was a subset of what we thought blogs were back then. Like it was what we thought the entire medium would grow to be. And so it wasn't just this, like, you know, the place that I pontificate about the stuff. It was like, I'm going to share parts of my everyday life with other people. And it's hard to realize 20 years later, but the idea that you would routinely just share photos of what was happening in your life was radical. Nobody had a camera phone. Nobody had the technology. And so just that idea that somebody, if you had family on the other side of the world, could routinely get a glimpse into your life, as I now have with my cousins. You know, when I was a kid, it was like one long distance call every couple months in the middle of the night with a terrible sound connection at extremely high cost was the only connection I had to my family on the other side of the world. And now I can just routinely message them or see their photos or see them on WhatsApp and be part of their life. That was all that promise that we thought this medium would do. You've convinced me. I think we're all on the <laughs> other end of it now. Yeah, I mean, but you at must the time, have it seemed some of that earlier. But get me to the present day. So we got to travel sure. through a few more things. There's some politics, yeah, so, there's some startups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the sort of fast forwarding bit, I had that moment. It was really good. I think I also saw in that world the kind of the parts of Silicon Valley that frustrated me the most. We had a company that was like, Outside investors came in, they brought in people who didn't really care about what we were doing. They tried to squeeze every penny out of it. They missed the boat on the ascendance of Facebook and even at that time, MySpace and everything else. And so it started to go sideways. And you see when it's not going through hypergrowth, kind of the worst patterns of you know who gets pushed to the side. And even you know back then, most social media companies had women as founders or co-founders. Most of them had fairly diverse teams. It's hard to believe. 15, 20 years later, and you would see who are the first people to get mm. cut and pushed aside. Mm. Right. Like, so, like so you're the, thinking about like Flickr and that movable. Yeah, yeah. Flickr, Flickr, move, right, exactly. Movable type, we had Mina Trot, Flickr had Katarina Fake, Blogger had Meg Horahan. So like at Bebo, like it was a husband and wife couple. So there are all these early social media tools that were like men and women and fairly diverse teams. And it moved, just the company we were doing were movable type. We were 50, 60 people and half the team were women and, and you know, including like the, the CEO of the company. And then it kind of felt like it changed overnight. Like as soon as the, the big players came in and at the same time, there was just a lot of people that were like, you know, this is the new gold rush, web 2.0 or whatever they called it. And so I, I got out of San Francisco. I came back home to New York. I, I really was like kind of done with all of it. I was, it was really like, I don't think I'm ever going to work at startups again, which of course is like famous last words. And I thought, you know, what's the furthest I can go from there? And it was really early days of the Obama administration. And I had been working with a, an old friend of mine, Gina Trapani, just building tools, open source tools for really our own interest. She had been running Lifehacker, which was, you know, this groundbreaking blog and had a huge audience. A huge blog. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she took it from literally zero to writing every single post herself for the first three years to the biggest blog on the internet. Like, I mean, just unbelievable. And then that combination of like wow. just pure sheer writing talent, 
incredible work ethic and then deep technical knowledge. I mean, there's just, you know, she's one of the great writers in the history of the internet, I really think. And we had kept in touch as she'd been doing all that and just started hacking on stuff of like, like you do a weekend project with a friend. It wasn't really, there was no intent around it. And it started to get traction. And literally by the time we started to think, is there something here? It was like in the top 10 projects on GitHub for the social media tools. I mean, it was really like, and it was just like her reputation and also that we'd made something kind of interesting. This is when Twitter was ascendant and Facebook to some degree and people wanted to have this like kind of analytics thing. And so it was interesting because she had built it, but we really both very interested in like, what are the ways you can apply this? Like it was like, what are the other problems you can solve with this as opposed to just conventional marketing? And the things that were really interesting was like people solving problems, talking to their community, really engaging people. Out of that, the first really big place it took off was in what was called civic tech or gov 2.0 or whatever. There was all these buzzwords for this idea that you were going to use technology to help with like social problems or government problems or civic problems. And long story short, it took off running. Uh, we ended up getting a grant from the MacArthur Foundation and did a research project for two years, building this tool out that was, was about... Think up. Yeah, exactly. And that was during that process, we named the product into think of it. It had been literally just like a pile of code. It wasn't even an app. And we turned these things into a product and it just started getting traction. Like it started getting picked up. People started to say, oh, this is a different way of understanding my network. I can have a conversation with a lot of people and understand something, get their insights. And the thing that MacArthur was really interested in is like, this is wild to say now almost 10 years later, social media impact public policymaking and shape discourse around government and politics. I mean, that was their question. And, you know, we started, yeah, yeah, right, you know, exactly. And we started just investigating that in 2009. And it's wild because at that point we would go into federal agencies. I got to go and talk to the, like the social media team at the White House and they would be like, oh, well, we're on, you know, Internet Explorer six on Windows and we're not able to use Facebook because it blocks our browser. And it was just like, it was like they were in a different world, you know? And meanwhile, we were like out in the world and we're like, we think all these politicians, you know, it's funny, they were focused on fundraising online, like that was their whole, like all of the campaigns were about like, how much money can we raise online? And, and like, can Ron Paul get a money bomb be. on Reddit? Well, yeah, but the, the, the idea that it would shape the dialogue was this like afterthought, it was a secondary concern. And we just kept coming back to that. We're like, hey, we really think there's something here. And, you know, and it'd be these weird places would pick it up, like the Department of the Interior, which runs the national parks would pick it up or the FCC, which was doing a lot of work around, you know, regulation of of wireless carriers or whatever, would be like, we want to ask the public what they think about T-Mobile doing something. And so you would just see it just take off. It was fascinating. I mean, it was really interesting. And we did that for two years. And I just sort of got the bug again, both of us really did of like, a lot of people could benefit from this. Like there's something here. And it's not just these, you know, government agencies. And that was where you and I had sort of connected is we, we decided to turn it into a company because it was had been an open source and like a, a toolkit, but it wasn't a product. And we're like, what do we make it a product and make it a company? And then we did, you know, we started thinking of as a company, we went kind of all in. I mean, that that first year, that was just a blur. I mean, it was just coding all day long and, you know, talking to users and building all the stuff. And it was, you know, that thing that, that, that startup thing, which is like both romanticized and also really grueling, you know, and oh, we killer. sort of... Killer. You know, we gr- we grounded out for like, I think it was like an eight, nine month run up to like the actual commercial productization. And we got this like, we did a crowdfunding campaign, we launched the whole thing. And you know, the response was really good. And literally like within, I don't know, a month or two, we ended up just constantly fighting. Twitter was like the core platform people with I mean, you could use it with Facebook and Instagram, but Twitter was like the and first they were audience you. base. They would shift the goalposts constantly. So they would 
shut something off or an interface that we were relying on would break or they would make a change. And it was like every day just to keep the features we already had running <laughs> was nonstop work. So you couldn't build anything new because you're constantly fixing the things that the users had wanted. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Why did Twitter do that? It, it seems like you know, such a missed opportunity. Yeah, you know, it depends who you talk to. One of the hardest parts of that, and I, I literally, I talked to, they still have a developer relations team, and I'd gone in with them last year. I think it was last year. And I was like, I want to tell you all the story of how you killed my startup. Because none of you were here then. And you should know this is why developers don't trust you. And, you know, I, I, it was probably a half hour, 45 minute session that I was just talking to them. But I was like, you know, I talked to the head of that. And they had been through like three different people in charge of this thing. But the head of developer relations globally, I had the access because I knew the, the Twitter folks and they would let me in and talk to them. And they'd be like, we're going to deliver this new search feature that you can use in Q3, you know, whatever it was. And it would come and go. And I'd be like, where's that at? And they'd be like, uh, we'll get back to you. And they would delay, delay. And then they would be like, okay, I'm leaving. There's a new guy. Because it was they were turning over CEOs every six months back then, let alone the rest of the team. And the new person would come in like, I've never heard of this. I've never heard of you. I'm not doing that. We're changing the roadmap. We're doing something else. And then you would just repeat. And it would just do this thing over and over. And it wasn't even malice. It was just a complete lack of intention or focus or strategy. And really, the only thing that changed that is they finally had like advertisers paying money for data about like, how many people are talking about this new car or something? And so everything they built was for that. And we weren't doing that. We were doing tools for creators because that was always what I loved. So if you were a person who used social media, you were like, I mean, I guess an influencer, but you could just be like, I'm trying to talk to people, engage with them, find out information or share an idea or whatever. Then we were building really good tools for you. And Twitter didn't care about them. Like they just did not care about power users. And it was such the opposite of the, the contrast I would draw, always draw with YouTube where like YouTube would move mountains for creators. You know, they had award shows and they would send you a plaque. You know, they would come and like, you know, give your dog a bath if it meant that you were going to make more stuff on YouTube. And they had a whole studio of tools. Mm -hmm. Like they made a whole creative suite for, you know, like it was like they made half of Adobe Photoshop for their, you know, whatever premiere just for video editors to use in the browser. Yeah. So you can make better videos. Well, I mean, as you characterize it, the contrast between these two businesses it feels really easy to describe as like a strategy problem and a management problem. So YouTube's strategy was correctly pointed. The folks that would be the most valuable over time, that would make the mm -hmm. platform valuable, the creators, Twitter's, right. I guess it wasn't. 
YouTube's managerial approach didn't involve the constant turnover and the turn on relationships and whatever. They had like a steadier, more direct kind of team and Twitter was in a lot of churn. But I want to investigate something. I want to use this. I mean, now you run an important company and we're not going to get to it. You'll say two sentences about it, but I want to use this to pry open one of my favorite topics that you investigate frequently in your high volume of uh, social media expression. Doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. Because there's a moral flavor to your speech you gave the Twitter people a year Mm -hmm. ago, I guess, that you're mentioning. And it's not like a, hey, guys, like, what's up? Like, have more regular meetings or, you know, public PowerPoint. What you're saying is you guys (laughs) didn't do the right thing. And uh, some people do the right thing at YouTube, for example. And I think even YouTube is not beyond reproach. I wonder this about, you know, the company I run these days that we run Glitch, and it's a tool for making apps, right? I worry about a lot of dimensions of that. You know, one one easy to imagine one is if, okay, people are building millions of apps on Glitch. What if somebody makes something that is hurtful, harmful, terrible, and in the usual ways, the internet is terrible? That's one way that we could fail. And that's fairly, even though that's a hard problem, that's fairly understood. Like people kind of get it. They're like, yeah, sometimes people do horrible things online. And then I think about like, what are the classes? maybe the remedy on that's pretty easy too, right? Like have a policy, kill it. Tell your people the policy, make sure they kill it. Right, right, exactly. Hopefully you do the right thing. Yeah, not everybody does, but like at least you can understand what the right thing to do would be. And then what I think about a lot more is what are the problems we don't know to anticipate? What are the accidental harms? Right. And that goes back to that social media era where uh, we talked a little bit about movable type. One of the other platforms the company owned was called LiveJournal. And that was the one of the first big social networks. I think it was the first social network to get to 10 million users. And it was great, great free expression and creative place. Lots of brilliant people that like were sharing what they did and had some pretty awful people on it doing terrible things. And I had often been the person making the argument that people still make now, which is like, well, what about free speech? They have a right to be horrible, uh, hateful people here. And what I didn't get at the time is the worst thing you allow defines what your platform is. And the, the sort of canonical example I always go to on this is the like, how many Nazis does it take in a bar for it to be a Nazi bar? And it's like, well, one, right? If you allow them, everybody else is like, I'm not going in there. And yeah. so it doesn't, you can't be like, well, there's 10 people in the bar and only one's a Nazi. It's like, no, no, no. If that guy's got the armband on and he's over there, I'm not going in that place. So there's a thing about social norms and standards and whatever else that you have to understand is a social dynamic. It's not a math problem. It's a human thing. Well, was it a moral question for Twitter when they were killing app developers? Do you think they even saw it that way? No, the thing is, we always conceive of tech platforms in this technocratic way. We never look at it from a human and social standpoint. So we talk about bits and bytes. We talk about what kind of data are allowed to be exchanged here. I think probably the best example here is like, if you uploaded a Beyonce song to Twitter right now as a a video on there, it would be down in a heartbeat, right? It would be down in, in like a minute. Like you don't own that and they have scanning. YouTube's a great example of this. They scan actively for copyright violations and take it down. And that's fine. Upload a hate crime. Right. They don't. Upload a false rumor. Yeah. And so those are, from a managerial standpoint, those are resourcing and economic questions. How many dollars are you going to put in those things? Because the technology it takes to detect a Beyonce song in real time as it's uploaded to YouTube is actually pretty wild. Like it's pretty advanced. They got there before they got to voice recognition of Siri and whatever, right? Like they got to pretty far along. And I'm like, wow, that's I mean, a they lot. I would say that although it's hard, it took them a decade and it's actually not as hard because there is a well-defined canon of yeah. 
license and copyright stuff, wouldn't they? Totally. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different problem space. It's not the exact same problem. It has different costs, and there are different parts that are harder that are easy. No question about it. But we don't actually know the shape of the problem and the comparison of the complexity of those two because the, the one they haven't even tried. Like the one they've tried, if you just said before they had done it, could you scan in real time every song uploaded to YouTube to detect this copyright violation? They were like, no, that technology does not exist. That is a hard problem. That is a hard problem. And yet they were able to do it. They carried out their like, you know, Manhattan Project and went all in on solving that problem because it, they felt that was existential to their business. Now, in that case, that was probably economic. The, the record labels actually have enough money to sue you out of existence. Also, they wanted content from record labels. They wanted to make sure that when Beyonce did have something, she would still like the platform and be their friend. And so like they had this social incentive of like, well, we can't antagonize this kind of creator or this person in society. And that's the kind of choice where I, I go back to the live journal example. I was the person saying we should let the Nazis be on the platform. I was that person. I was like, look, you know, people can say this in the public square. Why can't they say this on our platform? Like, you know, I don't like it, but, you know, I, I'll defend to the death the right for these people to be terrible here. And I did not understand two things. The first was the chilling effect of what it meant to other people where they're like, no, this is a Nazi bar. I'm not going in there. Right. People being hurtful and hateful decides what your community is actually about if you allow it. And I didn't get that social dynamic. I really didn't because I didn't feel you know, personally threatened by it. Like I thought, ah, it's just words on the screen. And that leads to the second problem, the much bigger problem, which was I thought this was ironic posturing, play acting, just kids acting out, not real. Like I thought it was, it's just words. It's not real life. It's not IRL. And uh, oh, I see, like the trolling kind of negative yeah, behavior. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're like, oh, that's just people online are just jerks and it doesn't count. There's always going to be some bad eggs. Like all the excuses we've all heard a million times. I'll spare the gory details, but one of the most prominent bad actors on that platform is a major leader of a genuinely violent movement in America that has literally resulted in people's deaths, multiple people. On multiple sides? On Live Journal. On Live Journal. Wow. Yeah. Which one is this? I'd actually rather not get into specific uh -huh. details. I, I, I share it, but it, you know what? That's the one I know of. There may be others. Like, I don't know, because there were enough people, there were entire communities of people that they called it trolling and they called it, you know, ironic racism or whatever. But I know of one. Yeah, and like, actually that is the costume that is frequently used even now, right? I'm yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. This? And that's where that framework Are you a, a sheep? Are you a sheep just believing or can I ask? Yeah, right. Exactly. And that entire rhetorical framework for popularizing these kinds of harms in the modern era was developed in the early days of social media as they learned to use these tools. I was naive about the seriousness of it. And I bought into that first frame of rhetoric, which a lot of people still do of like, oh, well, the answer to bad speech is more speech. And it's like, well, actually an algorithm that amplifies and helps people recruit for hate movements is a terrible thing to, to create in the world. And our naivete allows it to be created and allows it to be exploited. And the funny thing is, if they were doing it to scam people out of money in certain ways, we would block it. If they were doing it to push copyrighted material they don't own, we would block it. It is only in this one domain that we don't exercise our right to systematically look at how Very you're exploiting question. our system. Very yeah. fair question. The retreat of many of the responsible parties here is that, oh no, the problem's a lot harder. And yeah. somehow they managed to solve impossible problems. 
Let me ask you like a bunch of sort of yes, no lightning round sure. questions. Please. So now you have served with honor and dignity, having made some <laughs> mistakes and apologized for them for, I guess, about 20 years yeah. in the age of the internet. Yeah, I've been blogging for 20 years, uh, which is wild. Like a post a day? Are you up to 60,000? Not, not quite that pace. Not it's, it's less now, but <laughs> I still, I write every day, but I don't publish every day because there's so much more management work around it when I do. Standing where you are, and not as simply a protester in the park outside, with mm-hmm. responsibility for a business and users and oh, yeah. all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're not like a dead ender, I think, when you give your no. opinion. Uh, you have some accountability and other yeah. stakeholders. We have some favorite bad actors, or I don't know, favorite targets that take a lot of heat, you know? So like Facebook, yep. forced for good or not so clear? You know, it, it, like everything, it's complicated. When WhatsApp enables me to talk to my family on the other side of the world in real time in a way that I couldn't have otherwise, that is a, a good in the world. When they enable amplifying rhetoric that led to mass violence um, against the Rohingya in Myanmar, they were a force for evil. And but I, one I, Nazi actually, in the bar makes it a Nazi bar. I mean, yeah, right. I think so my, my feeling on this is what they, what they probably should have done as soon as they knew that there was mass violence being enabled on their platform is shut it down. And again, the same thing is if they had a security vulnerability, and they were like, credit cards are being leaked there. They would shut it down. That's routine. Every platform does that. We do that. Everybody does that. Yeah. So which, yeah. which violations get the kill switch? Which ones do you have a playbook for, for when you say, we, we run, this is what we do from a communication standpoint, community standpoint? Yeah. Like we all I have mean, those I think that framework. I think that framework of critical analysis is quite powerful, and you can keep reusing it, right? If you had like a business or military or security problem, what would you do? Now, over yeah. here, on what appears to be like a free speech or moral or ethical problem, what would you do? It, you, Just you keep it consistent. Parallel reasoning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I got like a couple more for you. Therefore, having spoken now about the platform, Zuckerberg, as leader of the free world or powerful <laughs> world. leader of uh, a multi-billion dollar, multi-billion person uh, ecosystem, has uh, risen to the challenge or not no. even close? No, not even close. I think shockingly irresponsible. And there's tons Twitter, of stuff you couldn't have known. Twitter, and Twitter reports have... for good or not so clear? I mean, same answer, right? Like I think, I actually think Twitter is more visible because of its design and I think has enabled, you know, serious harms and amplification of things, but actually probably not at the same scale of like actual violence. Like it's more of unpleasantness in culture, which matters and is, is negative, but is not, well, it's not violence, right? Well, and so, so I think- in their defense, no one uses it is sort of what you're saying. Right, exactly. And it's like, but I draw the contrast, actually. What I love to point out is Pinterest is about the same size as Twitter. And there's no roving, marauding bands of haters and horrible things happening. And they tend to act pretty responsibly. Things like misinformation on vaccines or whatever, they tend to be pretty good. It is not intrinsic to scale that you have to advocate responsibility. Now, they may not be as cool and they may not be as visible and whatever, but they're a business and they exist yeah, I mean, and millions huge. of people rely on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. And they matter in the world. So sideways, and like, and so it's, on Twitter, right. thumbs up on Pinterest. I guess Silberman, the founder of Pinterest, gets yeah. a thumbs up. And how about Absolutely. Mr. Dorsey at Twitter? I mean, up, I think down. it's hard to divorce. I knew Jack, you know, when Twitter was an audio side project and they hadn't spun out yet. And 
it's hard to divorce the public persona from the actual decisions, especially since it's running two companies, which I don't even know. I can't even fathom how that's possible running, just running one myself. You know, I don't know what is his choice. Like using Jack as a symbol of like leadership at Twitter, I, I think they have turned a corner in the last year where they're causing fewer problems than they solve, which is new for them because Twitter historically has always caused more problems than it solved. So I'm like, that's praise. On the other hand, it's so long overdue and the problems have been so egregious for so long that it's hard to be like, you know, here's a round of applause. I think they were way too slow to listen to their own users, especially their power users, about the harms and dangers that were taking place. All they had to do is listen to, and this is, you know, part of the lesson from ThinkUp. We built tools for their most, their power users. And we're like, we want to give them more tools so they can control and have a better experience. And they just wouldn't do it. And guess what? All those people were the exact same people waving every red flag in the world about what was bad that was happening on the platform. And they didn't listen to them either. And I think there's just such a, it's such a waste. It's such a shame. And there's no reason for it that they couldn't have just said, hey, what are our most valuable users saying? What can we do for them? Let's touch uh, one or two more of the big social platforms, and then I'll sure. let you volunteer a couple more. I thought it was really good to mention Pinterest. How about somebody that I very rarely hear criticism on, LinkedIn? Yeah. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs yeah. down, sports for good, uh, not so much. I think for the most part, pretty good. I think, you know, it's interesting because like within like insider techie circles, there's a little bit of like eye rolling about like I get too many emails from them. And I'm like, if that's your complaint, great. I mean, if your only criticism is like, Boy, th- their email preferences are not to my taste. I mean, like that's that to me is like of all the problems I have. I, I yeah, think I agree. And I mean, like, what's the secret though? Is it like verified identity? Because that's not true in Facebook world. No, yeah, no, identity, it, it, or is it just like a very tightly controlled set I, of I norms? Think, think a couple of things. Norms matter a lot. I think the biggest thing they have going for the two biggest things. One is purpose. Like, if you say, "What is it for?" People are like, "Oh, it's for getting jobs, right?" And, and if a site is about something as opposed to about anything or anything for everything. Because it's very easy to say, oh, you're not doing the appropriate thing. What you do doesn't belong here. And that goes to the second example, which I love. I was, um, I knew Reid Hoffman before he started LinkedIn. He was actually on the board of uh, uh, Six Apart, the company where we did movable time. And so I signed up for LinkedIn on the first day. I'm like user number 500 or something. And at that time, the other big social networks that were launching were uh, Friendster and Tribe. There was one called Tribe. And you would sign up, put your name in, and then you would put in uh, your, your photo right? Your avatar. And I went to LinkedIn and I was like, oh, Reed, there's no place to put my picture. And he's like, no, no, that's on purpose because this is a professional network. And if we let people put photos of themselves up right now, it's going to turn it into a dating site. And that was extraordinary to me. I feel like it was five years before you could have a photo on your LinkedIn profile. I mean, it was a long time and millions and millions of users. And the thing was that like, and you know, I don't think that's true anymore. That might've been just the norms of the internet, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it was. But there was thought about every design choice and what it meant about communicating about what the site was purpose was for and what its role was in the world. And I just really, I still, it was really instructive. Around the same time, I had a similar conversation with, um, I'm just going to go full name dropping me, but with, with Craig Newmark, who had done Craigslist. And there was this, they had built a, like a, their house listing, apartment listing thing, a real estate. And somebody had made like a map mashup with the first version of Google Maps and it would show all the listings. And somebody started to work on, you can show uh, crime stats for each of the neighborhoods. And I was like, Craig, you could put the, you know, which neighborhoods are safe and put the crime stats on top of the real estate listings. And literally without blinking, didn't even pause. Immediately he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. Because in a neighborhood that's getting better, 
will never get a chance. And all you're measuring is police presence. So, you know, you can't use past historical data to let people form an opinion about what a place is right now. So you, I, I would never put that on Craigslist. And it was one Let's, of those uh, like... Do Craigslist as a thumbs up, thumbs down? Uh, thumbs up, because, uh, you know, it was just that choice where he was very intentional about what is the impact and on the hasn't world. It has gone away, right? I mean, they made a no. lot of choices and sacrifices. Both LinkedIn and Craigslist and Pinterest made a lot of tough choices. And they are huge, mm-hmm. no matter how many rivals have emerged. How about YouTube? Give me like a YouTube thumbs up or down. It created a new medium in the world, which is incredibly valuable. Like so much, so much knowledge is there and so much connection is there. And I don't dismiss or diminish that at all. But they really abdicated their responsibility. Their algorithm has radicalized more people in the world than anything else in history. And people have died as a result. And they call you know, it a technical problem, I guess? Like they just think the engineering is too hard? Is that still the party line? I'm sure they have a lot of different excuses, but the fundamental problem is it's intentional with their business model. Like the, the algorithmic recommendation is necessary for their monetization to work the way that it currently does. And it would be a very radical change to change things away from that, you know, especially when it's billions of dollars involved. And I really thought, and I, I don't want to be glib about this, they had somebody come to their headquarters and shoot the place up, right? If that doesn't make you reflect and change, what your product is doing in the world, what would, you know? Last one. Yeah. Well, history will be the judge. Yeah. The points you make have merit. WeChat. I don't know enough to judge. I have an impression, but I don't know if it's accurate. I'm not a deep enough user to fairly judge. So I, I, I would, uh, I would abstain. I, I, I try to stay in my lane a little more these days because hard problems are hard. So I, I'm, you know, I've, I've heard all the criticisms and I think a lot of them sound valid, but I don't know enough to say from my own fluency in what they do that's tricky that's quite a reserved point of view this is a cultural accommodation from you or no you know it's funny i actually think because i'm outspoken about a lot of stuff i think people think i like fly off the handle or like just like to be provocative or whatever and there's actually a lot of areas where i'm like i don't know anything about that so i'm not going to weigh in on that and part of it is like i want to speak with authority on things that i know and so like well you know the critique of the way I talk about these things is like, I'll name drop all the people I know while talking about it. But part of that is the like context comes from seeing where these things came from. And that that's sort of the point right. of and on this case, story that way. Have, but, but often, but often yeah. if you have like a China topic and WeChat is a China topic, you're more or less being induced into weighing in or providing an opinion on how a society has chosen to, chosen to govern itself. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And that's actually a thing where I'm like, I actually think people think China is more different from America than it is. Like, obviously, there are huge cultural differences and political differences and whatever, but there's a sort of exoticism and, you know, distancing and foreignization of China where you're like, well, it's just a different world and you can't understand. You know, it's like, ah, it's legible to us. Like, their, their decisions are not that wild and not that unfamiliar. And so I, I, that part, I actually, I do think people are reticent to talk about, oh, you know, why do they do things the way they do? But, but I, I don't actually think the decision-making process is, is substantially different than how we make decisions, you know, for any American companies. Neil, thank you for being game. Weighing oh, I'm so glad to do it. On your view on a bunch of these. Thanks for being I'll on be. In the Know with me. I, I learned a lot. I mean, we've known each other for years. But yeah. What an interesting discussion. I appreciate the chance to do it. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love of people telling us how to spread great ideas. Write a review, please. A 
five-star review, spreads the word, and people will follow. Cheers. Thank you.